Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Returning to our study in the book of Ephesians as we are viewing the church through spiritual eyes to have the proper understanding of the purpose of the church and what God is doing. And want to return to this study as we are looking at the various aspects of our walk. You know, most parents can attest to the fact that for better or worse, children tend to imitate adults. Psychologists refer to this behavior as modeling. They say that it is especially true in the first five years that uh, one pediatrician stated mimicry begins at birth, but at age one marks the beginning of the true imitation or imitation with intent. That they look at their parents, they look at what they do, and they follow that. So it is said such behavior provides a sense of connection. It provides belonging. Children watch and listen. They imitate sounds that they hear. They learn to talk by repeating those sounds and learning which ones make sense. And then toddlers imitate household functions, maybe sweeping or you know, cleaning, uh, grooming. You say, my kids don't do that. Well, <laughs> that's the goal. Uh, but that they find this. And so they emphasize how important it is for parents that we have to be good examples to provide a good role model. The question I would like us to consider this morning is, who do you mimic? And that's the title of the message, that asking who do you mimic. Now, for you English teachers, linguistic specialists, grammarians, I realize the correct phrasing is whom do you mimic? And, and those who help with the editing process and preparation for our bulletin pointed this out to me. Um, at several junctions and I said but I want it to be more conversational so but I say that because I know some of you would be stuck on that for the entire sermon seeing it in your bulletin that this just isn't right and so I, I wanted to get that off of the the table let you know um, so that we can focus on the spiritual considerations and not the spelling issues uh, I want us to consider, though, continue in considering the worthy walk of those who follow Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what's being laid out in the second half of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 provide the foundational understanding of the, the relationship that we have as believers when we have trusted Jesus Christ, that we are part of His body. We are children of God. We're called to be holy, and, and, and we see all of that laid out in the first three chapters. Chapter 4 opens with, we are to walk worthy of that calling with which we are called. And so the first several verses of chapter 4 talk about walking in unity. That's verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Then it talks about walking in holiness. That's chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now we come to a third aspect of our walk, and that's walking in love. And we see that in verses 1 through 6. This will be followed by walking in light and walking in wisdom in this passage. But I want us to consider this first part of chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God 
as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no, no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would strive to see you clearly, that we might emulate your walk, your tender mercy, your kindness and forgiveness in our dealing with others that we would be seen as imitators of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One commentator wrote that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are among the most striking and beautiful in all the New Testament. He brought the attention and focusing on this amazing relationship that we have with God and the opportunity and responsibility then to follow him. The, the passage emphasizes the believer's unique family relationship with God and the display of his love that is seen in sacrificing his son. And so with that realization then comes the admonition to imitate God's love. What I want us to consider this morning is that those who have followed God are to imitate his love and reject the world's counterfeit forms of self-love that lead to common condemnation. That if we are children of God, we're to follow Him. Now, chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 4 and 5, told us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are chosen by God. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. And the reason for that, before the world was created, that we were chosen is that we would be holy and without blame before him in love because he predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ himself. That's what chapter 1 gave us as the foundation. So what we're looking at then is really our identity. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that you will emulate the sacrificial walk of love. That's the first thing that's being laid out. The, the context is God's gracious forgiveness. And, and many commentators really feel that the, the chapter break here is, is misplaced. That verses 1 and 2 are actually tying back to the end of chapter 4. Whatever the case, we, we know that Paul didn't write with chapter and verse divisions, and the flow of thought continues throughout all of this. But it's helpful to understand that verse 32 of chapter 4 says... And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. When we understand the tie to how God forgave us in Christ, and then recognizing that thought continues that we're to emulate that. We're to show that same love, compassion, tender-heartedness, forgiveness that God has shown to us. So how do we do that? 
Well, what we have to see is that the pattern of your compassion is to be followed, following your Father's tender kindness. I mean, the, the question is, how do I imitate God? You know, this is not a call to imitate His attributes of greatness. Though sometimes we kind of want those, that God is all-knowing. We want to know everything or act like we know everything. And we sometimes hear about people that are referred to as know-it-alls. Well, we can't imitate that. We can't be everywhere. We can't be omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. It's a call to imitate his attributes of goodness. God is great and God is good. We are called to imitate his goodness. And particularly here, his love. Now, there's several things that need to be in place if we're going to do that. Number one, you have to know God personally. You have to have that personal family relationship. It says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You must be, as it says in John 3, be born again. The idea there is being born spiritually into the family of God. You, you have to have that parental relationship that, that God is your heavenly Father. See, without spiritual life, we're going to end up pursuing an unsatisfying moralism. Trying to do what we think is right, change and hopefully be acceptable and, and realizing that we're never quite good enough. Because what we have to realize is our sin has separated us from God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we were dead in trespasses and sin and deserving of the wrath of God because of that condition but then verse 5 verse 4 says but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us he graciously sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin for my sin that we might live because of it's his grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and those are verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2 and, and I don't want us to lose the connection because when we get to the practical outworking of Ephesians, it's all on the foundation of the doctrine of what God has done. So when you have trusted Christ, you are God's, as it says here, dear child, beloved child. This is an interesting phrase because it would be used in the Greek literature to refer to an only child at times, that, that this was the child that the, the parents showed all their affection upon. They showered it upon that one child. And, and I say that because that child would feel the security. And I'm stressing this because I think sometimes we struggle with the idea of God's love for us personally. We, we, we get it in the big picture. God so loved the world, I'm in the world, I, I'm, I'm here by default. Or God loves the church, I'm part of the church, so he, he kind of has to accept me too. But we don't think of it in a personal aspect. You know, when, when we were in Egypt this, this summer, uh, I encountered one of the many entrepreneurs who come up to you as you're walking. <laughs> and, and he's trying to sell his trinkets. And they had warned us at this place. They said, when you go here, they're going to be aggressive. They're going to try to put it in your hands. They're going to try to get conversation going. So, so I'm walking, and, and he starts talking. He said, where are you from? And I said, the United States. He said, I love Americans. You know what? I didn't feel the love. 
I, I sensed he probably loved American currency more than American citizens. But I did not sense any personal relationship there. In fact, I was grabbing my wallet. And I wonder sometimes if that's not how we think of God's love. Oh yes, God loves the world. But only because I'm part of it do I have that love. No, this says that as dear children, God's love for his dear children is not superficial. And it's not just because you're part of the church. His love for you is steadfast. It's unchanging. And, and the importance of that is what will encourage us, that, that God cares for you. He keeps track of his children. He doesn't wonder, where are my kids right now? He doesn't need a baby monitor to know what's going on in the other room. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And when it comes to our lives and his purpose, he will never allow his children to suffer needlessly. Because all things work together for good to those who love him. So when trials come, when problems come, when the difficulties come, there's a reason for it. That he won't allow that because there's a purpose. And what is the purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. He who spared not his own son, will he not also give to us what is needed? That you have, when you know him personally, you have that relationship. The second thing is that we have, have to follow God carefully. So in chapter 2, as it continues on, it talks about our being dead in trespasses and sin and what his great love and mercy, it says then in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he has a plan for every one of us that we would walk in his plan that those good works not to earn his favor but that it's part of his program and part of that program is that God would be seen in this world how is an invisible God seen in this world he's displayed by his followers his children there's something different about you from time to time you may have somebody say that not long ago we had a we had a guest with us on a Sunday morning and came up to me in the guest reception he said do you recognize me and I, I I did but I was not coming up with a name and he gave me his name and I thought I've, I'm not sure if I've seen him in 40 years but he had grown up in the church that my dad pastored I worked for his father all through high school and he made the comment he said I, I see your dad's mannerisms in you now I, I really don't know what he means by that because I don't see that. But he had sat under my dad's ministry and he noticed a family resemblance. Folks, that ought to be true of all of us as we sit under God's word. That we pick up a family resemblance with our heavenly father because we are to imitate him, mimic him, dress like him, put on the clothes of forgiveness. That's the pattern that we're to follow. And the, and the Greek word here, translated imitate in, in verse 1, is, is the word mimetes, from which we get the word mimic. And so the idea is that we're to follow his pattern, resemble our Father in, in compassion and forgiveness, put on kindness, wear the clothes of, of forgiveness, imitating him. But we only imitate what we're familiar with. And so we have to have our eyes upon the Lord. 
as we have sung as a prayer, our eyes are upon you, Lord. Well, the more we gaze on him, the more we're going to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're to be like children who imitate the father. You know, and sometimes they want to dress up like their parents and put on their shoes or their boots. We're to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. This is what Colossians 3.12 tells us. And just as he acted graciously toward us, we're to show that same grace toward others. We're to show God's love in our walk. And so we, we see those tender mercies. The second thing we see, though, is we're to provide an example of Christ's selfless sacrifice. That's what we see in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This theme of God's love can be traced throughout this letter. I've already mentioned it. It begins back in chapter 1, verse 4, that we're chosen to be holy and without blame before him in love because he's predestined us. In chapter 2, verse 4, God's rich mercy and great love with which he loved us explains how we became alive in Christ. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, Paul prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love. And then that they would know the love of God, which is really beyond comprehension, is what he says in 3.19. Chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that we, are, we can have unity because we bear with one another in love. It's not we grit our teeth and just endure, but there's actually a a tender-heartedness, as 4.32 says, in our relationship. And then chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say that we are to speak the truth, but we do it in love for the purpose of edification. So this theme is coming throughout, and now we find it as we're to walk in love, and then the chapter will conclude with the example of love, the explanation of Christ's love as illustrated by the marriage relationship. So here we're told that God's love is seen, the character of God is seen in the love of Christ. The love is described as Christ handing himself over giving willingly himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God. That's that's what we see at the end. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God, which is a sweet-smelling aroma. And, And I'm stressing this because it's important that we don't miss the point that Christ's death wasn't because he couldn't live without us. He was not incomplete in the Godhead. It was because of God's great mercy and love that And it's an act of worship that Christ died for the glory of God. To redeem us for the glory of God. Therefore, it it really is for the glory of God. This is a radical definition of love. And we have been adopted into his family. We've been chosen. We're accepted in the beloved. This is about our identity. Who am I? I'm a dear child of the King. I'm accepted because of Jesus, not because of me, not because of what I've done or can do. He, God knows everything about you, and He loves you. And when we understand that, that encourages us then to walk in love. If we're going to mimic God's love, then we have to devi- define love as God defines it. 
and not as our world defines it. Tonight we're going to consider the, the Apostle John, the Apostle of love, and I, I find it, the Holy Spirit working and bringing these together. Somebody, you know, did I plan it? No, I'm not that organized. <laughs> no, if somebody says, well, I don't like organized religion. Well, you'll like me. I'm disorganized religion. But to consider the Apostle of love as we're talking about the walk of love. And when you look at the life of John, and we'll do this this evening, but what's fascinating is God loved him not simply for what he was, but what he would become. And it was God's working. So we have to understand God's definition of love, not buy into our culture's definition. No, our world says love is love. And they use that to remove the boundaries that God has established. And then to promote behavior that God condemns. That's not godly love. That's self-love. That's sinful love. It's, it's really lust. And to understand that, that's what the world presents, and that's what the next verses condemn. Because they in, the next verses indicate that selfish sensuality should never be named among believers. So the second thing we see is that not only do we have to walk in the pattern that God has established, the virtue of Christ's love, but we need to discard the selfish walk of lust. And here we find the negative aspect. The positive is in verses 1 and 2. Now we see the negative in verses 3 and 4. It shifts from the virtues to the vices. The virtues that we must show to the vices we must shun. Now, now, think back to who was the original audience receiving this letter. It's the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was not in the Mediterranean Bible Belt. This was a pagan culture. This was a corrupt city with debauched worship. I mean, these people had been saved out of worship that was known for its immorality. In fact, they had a temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, or that's the Greek name, or Diana, the Roman name, which we read in Acts. It was a goddess whose worship involved immorality. In fact, when I, I shared some of the details of our, our trip this summer and uh, being in Italy, we went to the Vatican Museum, and there was a statue there of the goddess Diana in that museum. I, I shared that picture. I'm not sharing it this morning, but it's a grotesque figure promoting fertility and worship that encouraged immorality. So this is who is being addressed, people who have been saved out of that. And it's not being written to the culture, it's being written to the church. So it's important that we understand this, that, that we have to abstain from sensual conduct. That's what we see here. And, and then it gives the specifics. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting of saints. There are several things that are mentioned, and I'm not going to spend time, I think we understand, but I want us to, to recognize the severity of what's being said. The first one is we're to abstain from immoral behavior. The word fornication. The Greek word was porneia. We get our word pornography. It's really a broad term of sexual immorality or physical intimacy without the parameters, the bounds of marriage that were established by God. You know, physical intimacy was God's idea. But he established the parameters where it was to be enjoyed and to, to bring that comfort, that, that closeness. And so we're to abstain from imp immoral behavior. The second is impure behavior. It says all 
uncleanness. Now, there are a lot of activities that fall into this that may not fit the, def- the technical definition of fornication. But they're not pure. And he's saying, abstain from all of it. All uncleanness. And then the third one is insatiable behavior. Covetousness. So, well, well, why is that on the list? Isn't covetousness usually wanting stuff? Well, it may tie back to the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. But it's really dealing with the inner attitude. It's the attitude of, of desire that's tied to immorality and impurity because it's seeking self-gratification. It's that improper self-seeking will that is not self-sacrificing. It's really the idea of seeking pleasure rather than seeking to please God. Well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. You are chosen to be holy. Now, happiness comes on the path to holiness. But the goal is that we would be holy. And it says there shouldn't even be a hint of such things named among believers. That's, that's what it says at the end of this passage. That, that it's, it's not fitting for believers. He's saying, that's your culture. That's Ephesus. That's the worship of Diana. But it's not fitting for saints. Holy people cannot live unholy lives without consequences. Remember, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. And as we began, we talked about the, the, the people in two worlds. Saints, they're set apart for the heavenly kingdom, but they're living here on earth. They're living in Ephesus. They're set apart, but living in a corrupt culture. And the concern is more than simply sensual conduct. It goes on and talks about polluted conversation. And that's the other thing that we see in this passage, that we're to abstain from polluted conversation. That's verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving thanks. Filthy talk, the inappropriate speech, the, that which really should be shameful. And we live in a culture that, frankly, has no shame. They talk about things that should not be discussed. But it shouldn't be named among us. Foolish talk, that's the senseless and silly talk that, that, that invites sin. Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It's the, the foolish, pointless talk, that, that foolish talk that accompanies a filthy life. And then foul talk, the coarse jesting that's not fitting, as it says in verse 6. The inappropriate humor, dirty jokes, laughing at sin. The, the humor, humor is like anger. It has to be appropriate and it has to be controlled. There's nothing wrong with humor, but it needs to be sanctified. You have a sanctified sense of humor. And, it's, and this is especially important because when we start laughing at something, we tend to let our guard down. And Satan wants us to laugh at sin. Hollywood is a master industry at getting people to laugh at sin, which makes them much more acceptive, receptive to it and accepting of it. So are we entertained by the things listed in this passage that shouldn't be named among us? Well, I'm not doing them, but are you vicariously enjoying them? We have to be careful that our life and our humor is sanctified. 
And then there's fallacious talk. The, let no one deceive you with empty words, it says. Don't be deceived into thinking this is no big deal. You know, everybody's doing it. Don't buy that lie. God's not doing it. And you're not to imitate everybody. You're to imitate Him. Mimic the Father. Let your speech reveal that, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and understand that what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart. You know, we, we have a... a a soda machine in our, our fellowship hall that our, our students use for lunch and, and it has various labels for the different drinks that you can get. And, and normally I know what's going to come out by the label. But that's not always the case. And once in a while I'll, I'll go to the, there's a Gatorade label and it says lemon lime. And I'll put my cup under it and something red starts coming out. Like, this isn't Gatorade. And so, well, actually it is. It's a different flavor. But it's not lemon-lime. Now, the label doesn't re- determine what's coming out. The tank does. Folks, the same thing's true with us. You can claim the label of Christian, but what comes out? It's not the label. It's what's in the heart that reveals what you truly are. Jesus said in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not the label we claim. It's, it's what's coming out. And then the, the third thing that we see in this passage is that we will recognize the eternal consequences of disobedience. You know, we say, well, why is this such a big deal? Our culture is going this way, and it's because the Bible makes it clear that when, clear that when you're a new person, you can't live like the old person. That we saw in, in the previous chapter, we're to be putting off that which pertains to the former manner of living and putting on that which pertains to the new life. And so 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, don't be unequally, unequally yoked or joined with unbelief. And then it says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What agreement with the, the temple of God with idols? It said, the temple of Diana and the temple of God can't be brought together. And so chapter, back here in verse 5, it says, For this you know. It says, mark it down. Take note. You've got this. That these, this is a strong statement. That these things should not be present in the life of a Christian. Now, please understand. I think we all understand this. Christians do fall. And Christians do sin. And Christians commit these sins. And there is forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous, just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. He cleans us up. That's written to Christians. But that should not be our excuse. That ought to be our comfort. Because if a person says, well, I can sin and not worry about it, it's like, no, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid. Because the moral directives of this passage are presented on the ground of our identity. Who are you? I'm a child, a dear child of the Heavenly Father. I'm called to be a saint, set apart. I'm called to be holy and blameless. I'm accepted in the beloved because Jesus loves me. Therefore, I ought to imitate Him and not the world that hates him. And so we we strive to live in a way that will bring him glory and understand that there is forgiveness. 
But I would say that persistence in selfish desire is really evidence of a dead faith. Don't just hang on to the label when what's coming out of the faucet contradicts it. One, one pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, said, we cannot be heirs of a heavenly kingdom while living as citizens of a sinful one. And again, understand, Christians fall, Christians struggle, Christians sin, but Christians fight. If you're comfortable in your sin, that should be a concern. Because the Holy Spirit convicts us. And when we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when we walk in the flesh, we're going to struggle. But understand that when we claim to belong to God, realize the, the warnings of God are part of what encourage us in our faith, not just His promises. We cling to the promises that when we're saved, that He will never leave us or forsake us, and that is true. But we also realize the warnings that sensitize us to sin. You know, we live in a culture, that, a society that claims one nation under God. But no society has ever survived promoting and flaunting idolatry, adultery, immorality, homosexual, like our, homosexuality like our society is doing today. We are inviting God's judgment. Frankly, I think it's here. But that's what God says. Those that do these things are inviting the wrath of God. It's not fitting. It's not because God loses, temp- loses His temper, but these things are diametrically opposed to His holiness. And so the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, remember, this passage is being addressed to the church. Because it's, what is our offering? If you look back at verse 2, it said that that sacrifice of Christ, that selflessness, was a sacrifice which was a sweet-smelling aroma. Does our life give off a fragrant aroma to God? That's what it's telling us. That Christ's sacrifice was pleasing God in that worship. It's like the, the sacrifices that were being burned and the, that aroma. But not every life is going to give that off. So is your life a fragrant aroma of worship to God? Or could selfish love cause it to stink to high heaven? That's really the illustration being used in verse 2. And we, I, I stress this because we must not be deceived to think these things don't matter. God's wrath will come. We, we must imitate Him. And there ought to be, when we sin, there ought to be that conviction, that guilt, not just because we get caught, not just because we don't like the circumstances, but because we've sinned against God. Say, Lord, I don't deserve your justice. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your cleansing. And that's when we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Because we have a high priest who understands. And that's the context of what is written there in Hebrews. The warnings and the promises. They both come together to encourage us in our faith. But folks, I would, I would say as, and as parents with our children and, and for all of us individually, that if we can sin with impunity and it doesn't bother us and we, we always seem to take the other side and we play devil's advocate, but we're not really ever God's advocate, understand you're not imitating God, you're masquerading. That's a dead faith. Because whom God justifies, He sanctifies. 
Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works we're his dear children we are special people and the grace of God that brings our salvation is also the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and really our desire for purity in our lives is an indication of our hope because it says in 1 John 3 3 everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure And so there ought to be that battle. Again, it doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't fall. And there is forgiveness, but there better be a battle. If it never bothers us and you say, well, sin just doesn't bother me, that should be a concern. Don't look at the label. Look at what's coming out. Because not only are we comforted by God's promises, we're cautioned by His warnings. Imitate His purity. What we see in application is that Conduct cannot be compartmentalized. We don't just have our our Sunday church app running over here and then what I do on Sunday afternoon and what I do on Monday and through the week and these other apps. No, you cannot compartmentalize. Because if you're a child of God, you're going to imitate Him. Not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. I think it's great that the theme for Tri-City Christian Academy this year is on walking. And for this month, it's walk in love. And the verse that our children are learning, our young people are learning, is here. Verse 2, walk in love. But we have to define it as God defines it. And that's really what's laid out. The biblical definition, rather than a sentimental, superficial, mushy emotion... No, it's actually sacrificial and painful. So how are we doing in this area? Let me just very quickly bullet point some questions of application. And and I've asked them on the screen to put it as, you know, if you were to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, and I've done this many times in different counseling sessions, and some of you are familiar with that, you know, it helps us determine how are we doing, where are we, but how would you rate yourself, scale of 1 to 10, is your speech advancing wholesome living? How would you say that you're doing in that area? Are you free from the filthy, foolish, inappropriate talk and humor? Or do you joke about sin or are you entertained by that which really is not fitting for those who are saints? Number two, how sacrificial is your behavior toward others? The definition of God's love is seen in Christ's willing sacrifice. That, that his character in verse 1 is seen in Christ's conduct in verse 2. It's displayed in that tender-hearted forgiving one another. The outward behavior is that, that being kind. The inner attitude is tender-hearted. And the result is the willingness to forgive. Number three, are you following the examples of genuine faith? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 says, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In our scripture reading in Philippians today, Paul is putting forward Timothy and Epaphroditus and saying, Imitate these men. 
So do we seek to emulate those that we see as faithful and can help us grow or do we look for excuses to say, well, I, if they do it, I can do it. No, don't imitate them. Imitate God and find those who are striving to imitate God. Paul said, be fo a follower of me as I follow Christ. So we seek to do that. How good are we at imitating faithfulness? How faithful would others be if they followed us there? Number four, are you a forgiving person? Do you forgive as God in Christ forgave you? That's what verse 32 says of chapter 4. And then it's therefore be imitators of God. Or do you keep bringing up the past? Well, I remember when they did this. You know what? The Bible says God remembers your sin against you no more. Do we have that attitude? Or do we kind of dwell on it? And, and we use that as the club or, or to get leverage when we need it. Number five, if someone follows your example, how close will they grow to the Lord? You know, that's convicting. That's what Paul said, follow me. Well, that means we have to try to emulate the Lord. That's why even secular psychologists tell parents you need to be a good example, especially when your children are young. Well, we need to be looking to our Heavenly Father and emulating Him that we would strive to, to show forth that. You know, if someone follows you, are they going to grow in that relationship? Are you characterized by Christ-like love? That's the sixth one. Are you, are you showing that sacrificial, selfless love? And the end of this chapter talks about how Christ's love is also sanctifying. And then number seven, how free are you from, from those things which incite God's wrath? This passage lays it out. It cuts to the, the chase very quickly. The question is, how clearly do others see God's love in you and in me? Are we imitating God? Are we mimicking Him in our daily life, in our attitude, in our working with others? You know, the, the news this past week was filled with reports concerning the, the death of Queen Elizabeth. Britain's longest reigning monarch. She was a woman of grace, of dignity, of propriety, and, and apparently of faith from a number of reports that have come out. But she took her duty very seriously. If you saw any or heard of her uh, address when she was 25 years old and, and talking about the duty that she had to the nation. But in her, at her coronation, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, you know, over here, speaking of in Britain, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most of who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, in my inexorable love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? One has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned with that coronation 
is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. As I read that quote, I thought of being an imitator of God. We are His children. He's the king. We are princes, princesses, and that crown being put upon our frames of dust and then told, mimic me. Be a follower of me. If that doesn't overwhelm us, we truly don't understand who God is and who we are. And before we would fall back in, in fear and say, there's just no way, remember the foundation of this book. We're accepted in the beloved. Not because of us, but because of Christ. We're called to be holy. And he who calls us will give us the power. But do you feel the weight of seeking to imitate God and walking in the love of Christ? If we do, then we'll strive to be sacrificial, self-denying rather than sensual and sinful. Because those who follow God are to imitate His love and to reject the world's counterfeit forms of self-love that lead to condemnation. If you're His child, that's your call. And if you're not, his call to you is come. Those who are weary, heavy laden, come to Christ. He will give you rest. He will save you, cleanse you, wash you, and set you apart as God's beloved child. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, for us in our sinfulness, our frailty, and in a culture that that promotes wickedness that laughs at immorality Lord we we struggle to live in a way that reflects that we are your children Lord we thank you that we do not do this in our strength faithful is he who calls us who will also do it and that when we fall we are still accepted because of Christ it's his finished atoning work that saves Lord, we pray that we would show forth that Christ-like love, that we would demonstrate it in our lives, that, that these sins that are mentioned here would not even be named among us because they're not fitting of those who are called saints. Help us to wear that crown of your glory in a way that shows that we are your children and that we would take that responsibility seriously and not flippantly, but that we would live for you. And Lord, we do pray that if there's one with us that has never trusted you, that even today, before they leave, they would speak with us, that they would know the joy of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us as believers and as a church to reflect the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, that we truly would be kind, gracious to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, as you have forgiven us, and then emulate that as we imitate you as our Father. And for this, we'll give you the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.